Welcome to today's Hemp Barons podcast, everyone. I'm host Joy Beckerman, and we have a wonderful guest to share with you today. So inspiring, so much information and action items as well. And I also want to talk to you, of course, about what's going on in our nation. The nation is waking. The walls of supremacy are falling. And the revolution is upon us live and direct. I know you can feel it. I feel it. Everybody feels it. It's in the street. It's on t-shirts. It's on masks. It's everywhere. Uh, And I want all of us to be a part of it. I want all of us to come alive, to use our voices, and to co-create a compassionate, vibrant, inclusive, regenerative, healthy nation and world, of which hemp is so much a part. But the most important catalyst for change and healing and transformation is our own selves. We hold the power to heal everything, to heal our bodies, to heal our communities. And I want us to take control of that and use that. I was really inspired by the Frederick Douglass, July 5th of 1852 speech that is so very famous that I... I've I've read several times now, but was reminded of once again uh, during our July 4th holiday, which has, of course, passed. And there's a a piece of that speech that I want to share. So thank you for allowing me to recite it for you right now. And it says, For it is not light that is needed, but fire. It is not the gentle shower, but thunder. We need the storm, the whirlwind, and the earthquake. The feeling of the nation must be quickened. The conscience of the nation must be roused. The propriety of the nation must be startled. The hypocrisy of the nation must be exposed. And its crimes against God and man must be proclaimed and denounced. Now, those words were spoken in 1852, and we are speaking them right now in 2020, and it's time to deliver on that missive. It's time to deliver on that mission. It's time to deliver on that promise. So I want us all to organize, to show up at protests and marches, to speak up everywhere, to intervene, defend, write letters, sign petitions, to participate, to contribute, donate, lead, vote. Just find your purpose and rage against the machine. So without further ado, get ready for a great interview with Cheryl Murray Powell, a superstar, a dynamo, a woman of tremendous power, and an attorney in a variety of sectors that come together to be the catalyst for great change within the cannabis, agricultural, and hemp movements. And until we meet again next week, everybody, stay inspired, do your purpose, and stay in good health. Wear that mask. Cheryl Murray Powell, welcome to Hemp Barons. We are so happy to have you here today, sister. Well, I'm glad to be here, Joy. I'm just glad to be with my sister in your presence, just really reflecting on this industry that's come so far and has a a ways to go. A ways to go indeed. And man, do they have the right gals for the job on it. I, I sit here and watch you and have watched you now for a number of years uh, since the reemergence of the crop with the farm bill. And certainly you've been involved before that, but you got on my radar um, when the 2014 farm bill began to um, take root and states began to take advantage of some of the uh, permissions through those agricultural pilot programs. 
you are a prolific leader in this space. Um, everything from, of course, the former director of federal affairs for the Florida Department of Ag and Consumer Services, you're a prolific attorney who has helped with so many different uh, companies that are trying to gain hold and gain traction in this space. Of course, you're straight up a cannabis and agricultural attorney and the executive director of the Black Farmers and Agriculturists of Florida. And among many, many other nonprofit roles, of course, you are the director of government relations to an organization that is so close to my heart, and that's the U.S. Hemp Building Association. Um, on top of your new commercial endeavor, Cannabisiac, and we want to go into uh, touching all of those things, sister. Um, but what we really want to make sure that we're educating the listeners, particularly during the tremendous consciousness, the revolution that is live and direct and obviously fully upon us now, of the struggle of Black farmers and Black, particularly ag landowners. Can you just, just start, Gal, and, and tell us a little bit about some of the... Um, the main struggles, and then if we could drill into heirs, property, and land fractionalization, which, as you know, Florida has just passed a great defensive bill, but let's hear it. Yeah, so when, when we look at, uh, you know, the Black farmer, and keep in mind that, you know, people of color, Indigenous people have fed um, definitely America since the beginning of America. So, um, you know, that reliance on Black farmers is not, it's not recent, it's not a century old. What we have seen is, um, you know, a significant amount of um, land loss issues. So, you know, you have the slavery era where, you know, black farmers were forbidden from owning land, even owning their own personhood. And then you transition to where they're recognized as a person, there's freedom, and then they, they have acquired land through many different means. Um, but then there was a systematic approach to um, taking that land away from the black farmer. Um, you know, some strategies include, you know, foreclosure policies. Um, the USDA and the Pigford lawsuit um, was sanctioned for some of their systemic racism practices. And, um, you know, it's almost like with, you know, the murder of George Floyd and some of our, you know, police brutality, civil rights issues. Now there's like a, a resurgence of people really investigating and looking inward as to what can I do to help. Um, I was recently reading that over the past hundred years, a million acres of black farmers property, um, real property has been taken from them. That's a million acres in a hundred years. Um, so, you know, one of the areas of focus is really making sure that the black farmer retains their land. Um, Senator Randolph Bracey, who's amazing, phenomenal uh, leader, uh, was very much um, responsible and had the support of um, the Florida uh, Black Caucus and, and other legislators who are allies. Um, and there, this, the law was signed into it was signed into law by uh, Governor DeSantis for um, a consideration of heirs property where heirs property cannot be partitioned and sold out without the knowledge of the other property owners. So imagine lands passed on from generation to generation. And typically, you know, as you go to a next generation, the, the family um, headcount grows, let's say exponentially. Um, that's what typically happens. Um, you know, and then there's one individual who has a portion of land or two individuals and they decide to sell. But 
you know, a lot of times this land hasn't been officially partitioned. So if they're selling their interests, now you are in bed with people that you traditionally haven't been. And then when you're looking at a parcel of land, you know, how, you know, some of it's going to be landlocked. So it's really difficult to look at, you know, family land as individual portions of land unless you consider, you know, easements and consider um, road access and um, water access and electrical access. So, you know, it can be very um, unfortunate and convenient and it leads to the loss of uh, hereditary land. So I was really pleased to see that I think it's um, milestone um, legislation that needs to be replicated across the country to protect these um, air property. So um, that I thought that was phenomenal. I, I've shared that with Senator Bracey. I've uh, shared in a number of groups and he's, you know, commented and acknowledged that, you know, he appreciates the support. Um, so it's something that didn't, wasn't really on the radar, but it really will make a difference as far as black farmers retaining their land. But even beyond that, you know, I have uh, created a strategy for farmers or organizations and governments that support farmers. Um, and I call it Grow to Ship. Um, I created it along with my business partner, Billy Reynolds, and um, that was under our consulting firm, Green Sustainable Strong. So it's an acronym. And um, the G for, from the grow, so it's grow with the number two ship. The G stands for growing diverse commodities. So really looking beyond you know, I've always grown this. Um, my grandfather grew it, that kind of thing. And really looking at what does the market tell me about what people want? And let's add some experimentation um, so that we can uh, approach international markets, but also be considerate of the fact that, you know, America has always been a melting pot. So our communities are more diverse. So if you have, you know, Indian immigrants starting to populate in your area, well, they're going to be nostalgic for their food. So if you're a farmer, why not grow what that new immigrant population is longing for? And then you can um, make sure that you are sustained. So that's the G in the grow to ship. The R is recruiting diverse talent. So when we talk about diversity in agriculture, I know the mindset automatically goes to race, but it's beyond that. There, It is ethnicity, um, but it's also gender and it's also professional diversity. And I think that really stems from my own personal experience as an attorney and a farmer. So when we're looking at farming, you know, you have the traditional farmer in the African-American community specifically. We have the legacy records and memories of, you know, digging in the soil equivalent to slavery, equivalent to not having and people not being respected. But that's not true. Farming is a very lucrative industry. So we need to kind of press restart on what does it mean to be a farmer with regards to your place in society. And then when we have farmers who have sent their children to medical school, have sent their children to law school, um, sent their children to be accountants, let's make sure they still have that tie to the farming industry. Um, always outreach to like-minded organizations like, you know, our hemp organizations, our farm bureaus, um, you know, all these different organizations in agriculture when we go and we lobby on behalf of farmers, we should share bullet points. We should say, you know, I'm gonna when I go in and I have access to this senator, I'm gonna talk about my points, but I'm gonna add a couple of yours on. And that's what we need to do as a body um, to to really magnify um, people's understanding of what farmers do. 
So when we look at the W of Grow to Ship, it's um, wellness and making sure that farmers are restored as the wellness hub of the community once again. Farmers used to be the wellness hub of the community. Some, uh, like I travel throughout the Caribbean, I work um, on cannabis throughout the Caribbean, and farmers are still looked at as that wellness hub. Like we use you know, the roots of plants, we use the leaves of plants, we use all parts of the plants, um, and, and we help heal people and we help people find relief. So again, farmers being uh, restored to the wellness hub of the community. Then you have to ship. So the S stands for sustainable practices, uh, sustainability and conservationalism. Um, the H stands for healthy financials. So really reteaching, reprogramming farmers to think fiscally. Um, the I is for innovation and technology and embracing precision agriculture, embracing the other parts of the value chain besides cultivation, going into the processing areas. And finally, the P is a stance for planting subchapters. So looking at bringing the support for farmers closer to where farmers live, work and play in their communities, whether it's a rural community or it's an urban community. So that's the grow to ship approach of green sustainable straw. Grow to ship. I love it. Executing it. And as we often say it, on this show, of course, it's the top six inches of soil and rainfall and farmers that keep all of us alive. Um, so absolutely uh, on the wellness. Now, I wanted, so, so for folks to sort of understand, because it is such a systemic problem um, with the heirs' property and land fraction, fractionation, you know, where does that come from when someone dies intestate? And generally, when we, are, you know, are socioeconomically deprived, who's got money for legal fees? Miss, thank God for you, Cheryl, who has probably clocked thousands of pro bono hours in her adult life. Um, again, and going strong on that, no doubt, um, which means, by the way, wealthy people, please hire this incredible top attorney because someone needs to subsidize her nonprofit work. Blessing. I, I lawyer to fund my activism. Exactly. I, I'm hearing you, girl. I consult to fund my activism and my activism runs over my capitalism every day. But and I digress. So when people die intestate and often folks who can't afford a lawyer are candidates for dying without a will, that's what intestate means, then that any property that they do own, real estate that they do own, is passed on to subsequent generations in what they would call tenancy in common, or more colloquially, we call it heirs' property. And in a, in a simple will, an intentional simple will, um, could just merely divide that property up equally among descendants. And and you spoke of, of a more simple sort of case where there's one or two, but what about when they're 17 and, and somebody wants to sell and, and the problems uh, that that incurs on top of the much more complex and all too common, which is why you brought them up first, because they're actually quite common, the easements, the water rights, all of those things that come with this with its land on top of the fact that when we consider that black owned ag lands is less than 2% of the ag lands in the United States. And so what I, I found interesting, and as you know, um, it, as you started to ascribe there, the Pigford case and the USDA, there was accountability there, thank goodness. And in June of 2017, 
the USDA and the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta. Where, so it was, it was really the USDA's, uh, I believe it was their Forest Service um, Southern Research Center. They got a bunch of heirs property research and legal service providers together for a big conference in Georgia. Were you there? I wasn't, no, but I know people who were there. I, I wasn't able to make it. I was at another conference, but. I bet. Oh my gosh. Okay. And that, that tremendous convergence of awareness and sensitivity to this untenable ongoing situation culminated in this September 2019 118-page uh, page compendium, really, that the USDA put out um, of for heirs, property, and land fractionization, fractionation called, I've got extract in my mind, fractionization, uh, fostering stable ownership to prevent land loss and abandonment. So, and I think that that September 19 report um, also dovetailed with a provision within the 2018 Farm Bill that is actually giving states incentive to pass the very types of laws uh, that Florida has passed. Yeah, and I, I think, I think um, Congressman Al Lawson, he's a Floridian, um, he's um, a congressman from the north area of Florida, and he sits on the House Ag Committee, and he's very passionate about this topic, um, was very integral in um, not only those provisions, but also provisions for land grant 1890 universities um, in the 2018 Farm Bill. So, you know, we look at the Farm Bill as, um, you know, canna cannabis connoisseurs, and we really focus on the, the um, descheduling of hemp as like the main thing. But when it comes to the black community, especially black academia, there were some really um, uh, favorable provisions that he fought and, and a number of legislators fought to make sure we're included. And then also the heirs property was a huge move in the right direction. And, you know, for as I'm not going to say I'm trying not to judge where where the world is at and where humanity is at right now, because we have to accept where we're at in order to move forward. Or we're just going to continue on with this cycle of self-hatred and never accept or begin to heal from the fact that this country was basically founded on uh, genocide and slavery. And, and what, you, what you're describing now, a good thing that's happening, despite everything we see on the news, is that the U.S. Congress right now in the history of the U.S. Congress is actually the most diverse that it's ever been. And this is where the light shines through those cracks. The very congressmen and women that you are discussing and talking about right now, they are the light that are shining through the cracks and and allowing, uh, you know, this this evolution and this revolution to take place. Let me ask you, Cheryl, are there different challenges for the rural black farmer or farmer of color um, than, than the urban? That's a great question. So there are different challenges. I think there's more in common than not. And I think one, we have to overcome the, um, you know, division between the two. Um, and it's an internal division where a rural farmer will say, hey, urban farming isn't really farming. And an urban um, agriculturalist is like, I don't want to live in the country. So, you know, I, I think we have to have that level of mutual respect for um, both areas. Fortunately, we're seeing more funding for and recognition for urban farmers. I think um, urban farmers are in that learning posture um, about farming itself more so than the rural farmer. I think the rural farmer is in the learn is in a learning posture with regards to innovation and technology and you know internet usage. Um, 
more so than the urban farmer. So the urban farmer is the one who's going to be like, let me go on the USDA site. Let me find that grant. Oh, there's an urban agriculture grant. You know, that's more the urban farmer. Let me go to farmer's market and let me be creative as far as what I'm going to do with this product once I sell it. Whereas the rural farmer is pretty um, stuck in a lot of times is, is pretty stuck in in their ways as far as, you know, this is what I've grown. You know, I'll find a purchaser when I finish growing or if they prearrange for a purchaser, it's probably someone they've been in relationship with for some time. Um, but there isn't so much the the constant seeking out of new uh, ways to distribute product that you would see with the urban farmer. So it leaves us in a position and I've even seen this in the Caribbean where if you have a large um, purchaser, you just get used to it. And then when they pull out, you're very vulnerable and it devastates that community because you are an employer of the community. So, you know, an example, St. Vincent um, and the Grenadines, they had a large man, um, banana uh, purchaser who pulled out and then it really had devastating effects on um, a, a significant area of the island, St. Vincent, because they were so dependent on um, those funds um, and, and that industry. Likewise, in the United States, if you have a, a rural farmer who's been doing business with a certain group and they're no longer able to purchase, they haven't really looked at that contingency as much as they should. They may not have been involved in organizations so they can network and collaborate as much as they could have, which is why, again, as I said, in Grow to Ship, the O is the outreach to like-minded organizations. So you're always networking, always looking for new people to purchase your product. Whereas an urban farmer is always like, I'm on a best farmer market. Oh, I heard about this health fair and I heard about this. They're a little bit more agile as far as being um, looking for diverse ways to get their product out. Yes. And, and I think a, a great sort of way to demonstrate this this issue for for listeners who may need sort of a visual on it or an analogy is Costco, for example, has a policy when you when you make it through the magical mecca of the gauntlet of having an, a, a product that Costco is willing to accept and sell. You enter into a contract with them where Costco straight up says you agree that our business to your company will not comprise more than 60% of your company's business because Costco is a responsible company that does not want to have on its heart or on its hands the fact that this company has completely depended upon Costco, built their whole business around Costco, and Costco dumps them like a bad habit the next week because a better product has come along. And that's what we're saying with the rural farmer is, you know, we get used to the big the big company and then the company pulls out and then what's going to happen and 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 frankly even as an attorney right what if all your cases settle at once as an attorney and i worked in high-end law firms most of my adult life so there's my frame of reference you're constantly having to market your law practice even if you're busy as heck with 10 cases because if they all settle you need a client absolutely with COVID-19, like it demonstrates exactly what you're talking about, Joy. So even for the farmers, as well as myself, my main client, um, you know, had to let me go off the, you know, like being a salaried employee, I still do work for them, but as a salaried employee with, you know, benefits and things like that due to COVID. And I understand because there was a reduction, there were stores closing, there was a reduction in, um, in sales and you adjust, but I've never really just put all my eggs in, in one basket as far as being able to you know, fund my practice. So I, I think that's a really good example because some people 
um, do that. Even when I worked for the Department of Agriculture, I had to shut down everything from my legal practice to make sure I wasn't conflicting with them. But then when I was no longer working for them, within an hour, I was like, and, and again, that's why you keep your reputation stellar. That's why you have good relationships with people. You, that's why you never act like you're too good for anybody. Because as soon as that, that job was no longer my job, I could call, pick up a phone and within hours have, you know, my, my fees coming in and I was back in business within hours. And with us, we sell our time and our intellect. So it's it's a lot easier for us to kind of pick up and move along. We are not selling the laborious, incredible, intense job that working the land is and, and finding that, that client uh, or that customer. Let's talk about some of the challenges. And, and of course, we know lending is one. We get racism in with lending. Lending is, the, is literally the fundamental piece of land ownership and being able to access financing. This is, the, this is the cornerstone of the American dream, and it's the cornerstone of commerce. So what are, what are first of all, if you have any examples of what happens to in the lending world and the lending scheme with people of color and then other similar barriers and challenges that are completely unjust uh, that black farmers are facing. Yeah, I think um, with uh, the lack of access to capital, which is why the Safe Banking Act passing is part of the um, uh, the you know COVID um, stimulus uh, is is very critical and important. Um, there, there is an access to capital issue for our industry, and it, it has a greater impact on on people of color. Um, one, like even when you look at hemp legislation and hemp rules, and you know when some when a state is proposing to attach a bond to it, it's easier for you know a traditional white farmer to get a bond than a black farmer to get a bond. So that's a barrier that's being put in place. To restrict the activity. It, it's not painted that way, but that's the actual impact of that type of legislation. And as you know, we've seen some proposed, it hasn't, we usually catch it at the proposed rule stage, as you well know, um, but we've seen some very wacky proposed rules like, oh, if you want to grow, you know, a, a hemp plant, you have to own at least this much land in order to be eligible for a license. Well, right then and there, we're, that's a racist practice right then and there. Absolutely. And we have to call it out as a systemic racist practice and then get them to take that out before it becomes the final rule. Um, but even with like um, not being able to fund your business, if you want to get into the business and, and you're trying to um, grow your business beyond being just in the cultivation area, you want to do some drying. So you want to put up a drying facility. You don't have access to capital. Do that. Then that puts you in a vulnerable state when it comes to relying on private companies. And the thing with the private companies is a lot of times they have really good lawyers. And um, I'm not saying all do this, but sometimes it's asserted that the private company's lawyer is also the farmer's lawyer. So we have our lawyer. We're did this is exactly what we said. This is exactly what we talked about. And then the farmer's signing this document, and then they're losing their rights. If it's an operating agreement, they don't. It's managed by a group of managers who aren't the farmer, or even if the farmer's listed as a manager, 
their vote means nothing and all the man, the, the number of other managers that are there. So there are a lot of predatory contracts that a farmer is susceptible to because they are reliant on private funding um, where the typical lending rules may or may not apply. And as you know, from being an attorney, if you are even approaching a situation in representation where there's a, a remote possibility that these two people eventually may have different interests by the rules of professional conduct you are then required to in writing discuss this potential conflict of interest and it's generally called what a joint representation agreement that discusses listen we're in a hairy spot here and it may vary we want to make sure you know i have a duty to disclose to you that your interests may diverge at some future point and you know i want to make you aware of that oftentimes those rules of professional conduct um are not followed in these situations not only are they not followed but in the uh, contracts there'll be a clause that indicates that I'm acknowledging that I had sufficient opportunity to seek legal counsel and I'm waiving XYZ as a result so they're already putting themselves um, in a position where they can't argue the sophistication of the other party versus themselves because they're already in the contract saying I had sufficient time to get a lawyer but what if you can't afford a lawyer, um, you know, or there's a lawyer who does this area. So, you know, the reason why I really um, um, always note that I'm a cannabis and agricultural attorney, because there aren't that many of them. There are not very many agricultural attorneys that practice in cannabis or cannabis attorneys that practice in agriculture. Um, so when you're going to a regular corporate lawyer for this contract review, they may or may not have that lens of, you know, the cannabis cultivator and understand the predatory nature of, of the industry. So they're not, they, they're not looking out for the right things. They may not have seen a tolling agreement. Um, so that can be challenging for our farmers as well. You know, it's amazing. And I'm, I'm constantly just beating the drum throughout this and, and folks have different levels of sophistication entering this, entering this industry, um, et cetera. And thinking, you know, that, that attorneys are jacks of all trade sister, you'd be the first one to say, Oh, you needed an IPO. I'm not your IPO girl. Go to the securities attorney. Um, you know, Oh, you needed FDA law head over to the FDA. You know, I'm transactional. I never go to court. <laughs> so, you know, but, but folks, and, and that, level of trust and I often refer to farmers or, or think of them as some of the most trusting humans uh, in in business or in America or, or throughout farmers are trusting uh, are trusting and so let's talk a, a little bit if we could about how what can we do? And actually, before I say that, I'm just, I've been sort of gnawing a hole in the, in the side of my cheek because I've been so exciting to tell you and we haven't had a, a chance to have a private conversation about it. You know, of course, the hellacious compromise that was made during uh, the conference, the Farm Bill Conference 2018, when a compromise was made um, that in order for this expanded definition of hemp to include the extracts, the compounds and derivatives, which that definition that expansive definition had been threatened and then some compromise was made that there would be a drug it was obviously a prohibitionist a racist prohibitionist um, that there would be the 10-year drug felony ban which is now 
it the law um, that if you have been convicted of a drug felony within 10 years, you are not eligible to participate in the opportunities and promise of hemp. And of course, we're painfully and acutely and hyper aware that people of color and minorities have been hugely disproportionately impacted uh, by the drug war. Thereby, we're continuing to disproportionately impact them by saying, now you can't be a part of hemp. I want you to know that the U.S. Hemp Roundtable um, we have formed our Minority Empowerment Committee. We've got some wonderful folks from NCIA, uh, as, as well as Amber Littlejohn uh, from the Minority Cannabis Business Association and an incredible um, committee that is formed. Not only will we be making uh, inclusive and diversity business practices, standards that we will hold our members to, as well as becoming a, a resource and collecting information about Black-owned businesses, suppliers, farmers, etc. Well, I'm glad, to, I'm glad to see that, because I think there was definitely a need. Um, U.S. Hemp Roundtable has been a leader of our industry uh, for a very long time, instrumental in uh, hemp legalization, but definitely was in need of some diversity. Absolutely. And so I, the best part I was kind of saving for last is uh, we will be taking on the issue uh, to amend the the current law such that um, that drug felony ban will go away. So that has that is now a formal major priority uh, for the U.S. Hemp Roundtable. And I'm, I'm pretty excited to to share that with you, sister. Well, so salute to the U.S. Hemp Roundtable round for um, uh, taking, uh, take the, taking the leadership in that way. I know you had a lot to do with it. Um, you're always on the forefront. I'll never forget the work that you did, um, with the hemp industry association cases prior to the 2018 farm bill. I remember us, uh, meeting up in, uh, was it Sacramento? We were in San Diego, say, uh, San Francisco, San Francisco, ninth circuit. San Francisco. We were in Cali. Um, uh, what is it? February, 15, 2018, yep. and you were just, you, you, you were rallying for, you know, turning a gray area into a less gray area so that we can continue to do what we're doing, continue to help the people that we're doing. So I will never forget that experience with you and with Bob Cohen. Um, and um, that needs to be Patrick Goggin, Garrett Graff. Garrett, oh, Garrett, yes, absolutely. But that needs to be permanently noted in our history of the industry. Um, as far as um, changing the game. And um, I applaud you for it. I respect you forever. Oh, you're such an angel. You are something else. I love being your reflection. I will be your mirror any day. Let me, let me ask you this. What are some, and if this was the question I was going with before I elaborated and just couldn't wait to share the news with you about uh, the U.S. Hemp Roundtable taking this on, but what are some things that average people and then maybe business owners, what can we do? There are a number of organizations and I'm learning about more and more of these organizations every day, but what are things that we can do if we're business owners or what, how can we support the black farmer? Um, what are things that we should be aware of and better choices that we should be making more conscious? Yeah. I thank you for asking that question because I think one thing that we shouldn't do um, and I get a lot of calls about this is seeking the black faith to our application, but not treating them right when it comes to the terms of the contracts. That is <laughs> the biggest challenge that we have is everybody wants to be involved with equity right now because it's a hot, it's a hot term. There's more um, um, evangelizing. There's, you know, more people understand the need for it and racial injustice. 
but it is insufficient for your company that has operated um, without diversity to just seek a brown face to represent you for a transaction. And then at the, and on the back end, the documents that are not being submitted to the state or whatever jurisdiction, you're basically robbing that brown person of the legacy that they could create, whether it's within a year, 10 years, option agreements, et cetera, and so on. That does a disservice to our, our fight. But what you can do is if you're an organization um, you know, making change as far as committees are fantastic, um, uh, fantastic efforts, uh, fantastic um, examples to set great role modeling for the industry. But at your leadership level, not just um, ring fenced into a particular committee on your executive board, have diverse voices. That's the first thing that you need to do is make sure that people really legit have a seat at the table. Don't say, okay, we're going to task you with diversity, but actually saying, you know what? We want to add some more people with the same voting rights that we have that actually represent more of what America represents. And I think that's really where we need to go next. And that goes for um, conferences, whether they're virtual conferences or otherwise, um, making sure that you don't just have a diversity panel. Or a women's panel. I know. God, I'm sorry. Don't ask me to be on a women's panel. <laughs> ask me to be on an expert panel, for the love exactly. of God. Exactly. I'll be on the legal panel all day. Um, you know, and, and you know, when when I I'll do a diversity panel, but I'm really gonna be really heavy hitting and hard hitting and ask for next year. Let's do it a little different. We want to be on the advisory boards. We want to be on your leadership decision-making boards. And then we want to be represented in the professions that we operate in, not just ring fence to like the last session of the day um, being about diversity when most of the people have already gone. Um, I think, yes, increasing the access to capital as well. I would like to see governments um, and this is something I, when I was with the Department of Agriculture, I wasn't able to uh, convince uh, decision makers, but um, encouraging universities to provide resources to farmers, such as our law schools should have clinics, especially if the law school's in a rural area, a clinic set up for support for farmers. Law students can do, with supervision, contract review and other things that'll make them better attorneys. Um, make them more compassionate to farmers and assist the farmers so they'll have reduction in rates or even if it can be a, a, um, done pro bono where they they are strengthening their ability to commercialize. Man, I have light encoded filaments just going on in my brain synapses right now. That that one, I mean, everything that you've just said, just thank you. I'm drinking it in. I'm hoping everyone's drinking it in as obvious as so much of it is and should be. Um, but, you know, law is my thing. And of course, the U.S. Hemp Roundtable has lots of lawyers. And while we are having to be very strategic because we, when the U.S. Hemp Roundtable actually makes a mission, they go for it. And so we're, we realize we can't do everything we want to do and it has to be in some type of a priority but what you have just said there girl in terms of 
making attorneys more aware of how to be inclusive, just, fair. Uh, that is so key. And can you imagine? We we have the opportunity um, to get into some really high-end firms with, with lawyers who would love to have this information. Their heart is in the right place, and they would love to have this information. And I think you may be aware that somebody advocated with great support um, from Jonathan Miller himself to get the U.S. Hemp Building Association to be a member, uh, an advocacy partner of the U.S. Hemp Brown People. So busy as you are, maybe one time I'll, I'll give you a call and say, give me some bullet point lists on what we can share with these lawyers because, man, that is a tremendous um, healing tool, a tremendous healing tool right there. That's brilliant. Yeah, absolutely. And I'll show up as well. I was there, uh, you know, at some of the meetings in the past in DC. So I, I'm more than willing to show up as well as give you bullet points because, you know, I trust you that your heart's in the same place mine is. So I don't even necessarily have to be there. So we can find a balance between the two. I show up when I need to. And I also trust you, sister, to advocate on our behalf because you are you are us and we are you. We are one. Oh, I'm, I'm taking that in and I'm receiving that with everything, everything. And, and may that spirit and that feeling multiply and it is multiplying. And, and I think we need to acknowledge that, that it, that multiplication of uh, synergy, of sisterhood, of brotherhood, of unity is happening exponentially all over this country right now and all over the world. Now, it's not, that's not what's making the six o'clock news, but boy, is it happening. And that's the vibration to plug into right there. We are so, so blessed. And, and like when we, when we do that, um, that synergistic um, collaboration, it's really important that we bring our critical thinking skills and, and we, leave the egos at the door and we really think about long-term help. Not, I want to relieve my guilt help, but really long-term strategic um, game-changing assistance um, where it, it is a sacrifice, um, you know, uh, but, but it's for the greater good and you can be proud of your, your contributions. That's where we need to be um, headed as far as um, nobody wants to be accused um, but we can accuse ourselves and say, have I done enough? Have I done enough? Have I been there for my brother? Have I been there for my sister? Have I benefited from privilege? And then have those conversations with yourself so that you can come up with a, a demonstrative list of things, actions that you can take within your power to make a difference for your, for your community, for others, and for the future generation. A real a self inventory and and authenticity. Yeah. Cheryl, before we part, and I cannot wait to have you back. Um, is there something that you want to make sure that that the listeners know? Is there anything super that you just want to make sure you communicate? Yeah, I think I think um, we need to look at the systems we have in place, and one. There's, a, there's an opportunity to dismantle, but there's also an opportunity to work within the system. You know, having to, trying to boil the ocean, like we can't eliminate the USDA, but we can work within the framework and make sure we're educating ourselves on what services are available, what's being given um, to others. So I'll give you an example. Before there was this kind of re reflection on being black in agriculture and how black agriculturists are disadvantaged, disadvantaged we had all of last year where the marketing 
facilitate market facilitation um, budget was being given out billions and millions of dollars. And it was like, what, 95% white farmers? Like it was like a high 90s. Um, and also like high 90s of large farmers got those funds. Now there's a system in place. We don't have to dismantle the system, but we really need to make sure that we are informing people how to work in the system. That means being a little uncomfortable. That means really sacrificing time to understand it, partnering with the organizations that do it and know it, like example, a farm bureau, and then take that information back to our M communities, to our African-American communities, to our Hispanic communities, which those farmers are actually steadily increasing, our indigenous farmers, our Native American farmers, and making sure that they get their proper share of the funding that's available. All of us applaud when the USDA is given money because a lot of it goes to the SNAP program, you know, a lot of it goes to farmers, but if they don't know these resources are there, they don't get it. Or if the approach to applying is too cumbersome or more sophisticated than is reasonable, then they don't know how to get it. So we need to understand the system. Uh, it's not always necessarily shut down the system, understand it, um, inject ourselves into it and really take the information and get it, chop it up, get it out to people so that we can increase our market share of those resources that are, that are available. Oh, and with leaders like you, it's happening all over. Cheryl Murray Powell, thank you for absolutely everything you do for hemp, everything you do for agriculture, everything you do for minorities and people of color and women. And I just cannot wait till we can gather again and I can give you a real live hug. So much love and light to you. Thank you. And, uh, you know, I, you know, I admire your work. Um, I'm looking forward to um, being in the trenches with you soldiering up with you and working to a better future together, Joy. So thank you for having me on. I'm so glad I got to connect with your audience and let me know what you need. And if I can uh, come on again, I'm more than happy to do so. So appreciate that, sister. You stay healthy until next time. Thank you. Take care, Joy. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. 99.9% of our DNA is identical. It's a 0.1% that truly makes us different and unique. And that's what the show is about. Find out that 0.1% about your favorite guests. Find out what music they like their first cannabis experience, and even what their room looked like growing up. But more importantly, or as important, their journey. Learn what makes them unique on Everything is Personal.